Almighty God, you are trustworthy, true, and right. You have proved yourself faithful and steadfast throughout all the generations. And you are worthy of worship and honor and praise. You deserve much closer attention, devotion, and consideration this morning. We confess, Lord, that our lives are often filled with calendars, tasks, agendas, and errands. Many of these things, important and pressing, however, in our busyness, we have lost sight of our first love. We have drifted from Christ, the radiance of the glory of God. And we have settled for the shadows of our busyness. Lord, fill us with your spirit this morning in the preaching of your word that we may know with clarity the danger of our drifting. Convince us of the just retribution assured for every transgression and every disobedience. And grant us, Lord, repentance and faith by your kindness this morning. Allow us to consider the great hope we have in escaping the sure judgment and to receive with joy and anticipation the great salvation that you provide for us in Christ Jesus. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things not in our strength or because we are worthy, but because of Jesus Christ. For he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is worthy. And he is the one whom we have access through. And so because of our great and trustworthy Savior, we're going to lean on him this morning, Father, and ask that you will grant your spirit to come and give us hope, joy, faith, and repentance. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let us look at Hebrews chapter 2 this morning and consider Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be only looking at verses 1 through 4 as we consider this together this morning. And I want us to understand as we approach this, if you notice in your worship journal on page 3, we have the outline there, and it's pretty much a preaching outline. It's, it can, it can uh, vary a little bit, but for the most part, we're going to be sticking to this outline. And if you'll notice there, this is the first of several warnings. There's actually seven in the book of Hebrews. All of them are not listed there, but this is the first of seven warnings. And in these warnings, I want to kind of introduce you to these, these warnings in this way. First, there are those of you who may be here this morning that think that such warnings are not helpful. That if anything, they create doubt and suspicion in the hearts of those who are here this morning and give us questions on whether we are genuinely saved or not, whether we are genuinely with Christ or not. I would say that Scripture actually gives us a great deal of encouragement in this regard and that we are people who are indeed those who are genuinely saved or those who are supposed to be examining our salvation so that we are sure of it. We find in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This is Paul speaking to a church. He goes on and says, Test yourselves. Or, Do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ is in you? And then he goes on, he says, Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. 
Unless you indeed fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed this test. You see what he's saying there? Examine yourselves, test yourselves. My heart as we look at these warnings this morning is to consider the fact that we need to constantly come before the Lord and say, is the faith that I profess genuine? Or is it something that I assume, something that I just take for granted? Now, I want to explain this, and I may mention it again later, and that is I want to reiterate the fact that the book of Hebrews was written by, it was actually, it's actually a sermon that was written by a pastor who cares for his congregation. And so this morning, as we hear this warning, I want you to understand that this, was a, this is a, a message that's written by a pastor warning his congregation, desiring for them to consider a truth that is very, very important and indeed urgent. This morning, I want you to know that I, as your pastor, am warning us to, according to verse 1, pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And so consider that. Others who, some don't like war- do not like the warnings in Scripture and the opportunities for people to consider and test and examine themselves because they think it may create doubt or suspicion. Others, however, use these warning passages to say, see, right here, we can see where people can lose their salvation, that they can actually be not saved. They can be saved and then lose it and then have to come back to it, and that's what these warning passages are telling us of. Well, I want to encourage you that um, we um, do not believe that these warning passages actually speak to the idea of people being able to lose their salvation, but in fact, it's a test for those who are genuinely saved. Instead, what we have in our statement of faith personally, our our statement of faith for our congregation, in the Article 11, Perseverance of the Saints, it says this, and listen. We believe that such only, you hear that? We believe that such only are real believers as endure to the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the ground, or excuse me, grand mark, which distinguishes them from, listen to this phrase, Superficial professors. There are superficial professors of faith. And you know where those people are? They're in churches. They show up every Sunday morning. Superficial professors. professors. And that a special providence watches over their welfare, those who are persevering in the faith. And they are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation. Perseverance. Those who are true and genuine believers are those who endure to the end. So this warning is a warning, but it's also an encouragement to endure, to prove your faith, to examine yourself this morning. We don't have many passages like this, do we? I mean, when was the last time, think back, that we've looked concerning this particular... Now, every Sunday, my prayer is that I challenge you with the claims of Christ. But very seldom do I come to you and say, question, consider, examine your own faith. I I don't do that very often. This morning, this text is necessitating that for us this morning. And I'm glad we're here. Because I think we have the same tendency that these people, this congregation in the book of Hebrews had. And that is that they could have very easily, and we could today very easily, drift away. We know this is true. 1 John chapter 2 says there are some who are no longer with us. Remember that passage? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not really ever of us. Hmm. 
You see what's happening here? The true test, the true examination is the perseverance, is the persevering power. Now, let me, let me help you here. This isn't you hanging on. This is God hanging on to you. This isn't you doing your best to step up to the plate. This is the persevering power of God in your life. And so this morning, I want us to notice uh, verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Do you see this? I want to just look at this passage, and then I'll give you the points in just a minute. So I haven't, I haven't forgotten them. I'm going to give them to you in just a moment. But I want us to see what we're looking at this morning. And what we're looking at this morning is this. Is that first, the author of Hebrews is saying... Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. Therefore, what? Therefore, because of the truth that we've been learning in chapter 1 for the last two or three weeks. Because of Christ's supremacy. Because Christ is far more superior than even the angels. That He is, according to our passage, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, verse 3. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power because of this incredible doctrine. Chapter 1 of Hebrews is probably one of the most um, amazing chapters on the centrality and the explanation of who Christ is and what He has done as He's come to earth. It's amazing doctrine. It's amazing truth that we can think about and consider. But what the the pastor preacher of this book of Hebrews wants his people to see is that that truth isn't going to go anywhere if we're not going to begin applying it to our lives. So what he says is, because of this great, wonderful truth of who Christ is, his supremacy, the fact that he is over all of creation, that everything will be subjected to him, and that he's the radiance of God, because of that, listen, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. I see you guys watching that fall as we go. So let me see if I can keep that where it needs to be. Because of the supremacy of Christ, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now there's something for everyone here this morning. Do you notice what the pastor is saying in this book? And I'm going to refer to the author of Hebrews as a pastor. Do you notice what this pastor is saying to his congregation? We, he's included. I'm included this morning in this passage. We must, this is an imperative, this is a command, this is a demand. We must pay much closer attention. So this is the point of this text. The pastor here obviously sees in his congregation, some of his congregation and many of his congregation, paying some attention to Christ. To the supremacy of Christ. To the effects of what Christ is doing in the midst of their body. But you know what this pastor is saying to them? No matter where any of you are this morning, because of who Christ is, you must pay much closer attention than what you currently are to Christ and to his message. That's what he's saying here. No matter where we are. So some of you may say, well, I've been, I've been seeking Christ. I've been pursuing Christ. I've been looking to Christ. There's been times in my life, specifically this week, where the Lord has been pointing me to him. And this passage is saying, no, but, but because of who he is, he's the radiance of the glory of God. There is, there is need in your life, friends. There's need in my life to pay much closer attention. This word for attention is the word for devotion. Pay much closer heed. Give yourselves to this one. It says we must pay much closer attention, it says here. 
And it goes on and it says to what? What are we supposed to pay much closer attention to? We're supposed to pay much closer attention to our lifestyle. We're supposed to pay much closer attention to our feelings. We're supposed to pay much more closer attention to, to, to the people that are around us. Not at all. Isn't it amazing that this pastor is saying that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, what we have listened to with our ears. Now, this is not just in general. This pastor is saying that when you have come here and heard Christ preached week after week, as this pastor has preached this sermon, the book of Hebrews, and this is one of his sermons that he's preached to his congregation, he's saying we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard about Christ, about the gospel, about this message. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And he's saying we must pay much closer attention, not to our feelings, Not to our lifestyles, not to our actions. Those things are necessary. We need to pay attention to those. We need to be guarded in our thought life and in our actions and in our doing. But friends, we must pay much closer attention to what we hear. To the Christ that's being proclaimed week after week, Sunday after Sunday. Can we make just a couple of applications here that I think are just so simplistic that they may not even even need to be considered? How can you pay much closer attention to what you have heard if you're not here? I mean, is that, is that simple enough? I mean, you're not paying closer attention to what you have heard when a habit in your life is that, you are, that, that if anything else comes up, church gets set aside. Hearing from Christ gets set aside. Now, is it so important that you come and that you hear a guy Preach every Sunday, whomever it may be, wherever it may be. Not at all. In fact, there's many, I believe, who needs to be avoided. They, they don't need to be, you don't need to place yourself under their preaching regularly. But if Christ is being exalted, if the gospel is being presented, and if God's people are gathering for that, friends, a, uh, an iPod podcast is not going to do. A, a television program that you can sit at home and watch will not do. Because that's not gathering as God's people and hearing his word together. We must pay pay much closer attention to what we have heard. To what we have heard. Now, what did they hear? Look with me in chapter 1, verse 2. It says, well, let's look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrews. It says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so here in the prophets, God has spoken in the past. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So what are they hearing when they're coming to gather as God's people as this pastor in the book of Hebrews is preaching to his people? What are they hearing? They're hearing these words that have been spoken through the son. Specifically the words of Christ. The words that we have specifically in the gospels. So it's not only the Old Testament message where we see in chapter 1, remember, see all these quotes here in chapter 1? All of these are Psalms and references to the Old Testament of how the Old Testament points to Christ. So he wasn't only communicating how the Old Testament was pointing to Christ, but then he says, and there are words that Jesus Christ himself spoke, that Jesus Christ, the message that he portrayed, and that is the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore. This message that we have heard, friends, we must pay much closer attention to. Now, the problem, I believe, is this. It's not that our attention, and this is where, this is where it hit pay dirt for me this week. 
Okay, so, so hear this. The issue is not that we're, we're not paying attention to anything, friends. The issue is that our attention is so divided among so many other things that Christ is not given this much closer attention that he deserves. You see, the issue is not that you're just ignoring Christ. The issue is that you're so busy attending yourself to so many other things that Christ gets pushed out, that he becomes secondary. Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable, and he says to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The, the sower sows the word. The sower, he's using a, a parable here, the sower sows seed, and that seed is the word of God. We know this parable. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear it, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word. And so when the word is preached and sent out, the seed is being scattered among us this morning in our congregation. Is it that this morning, could it be that Satan is coming and snatching that seed before it even gets to your heart? You're enduring this morning. You could care less about being here. Your mind is somewhere else. You could care less about Christ. And you're here receiving the word and Satan is snatching it away before it even gets to your heart. See, your attention is not that it's, it's, it's nowhere. It's that it's everywhere else but in Christ. This morning, our attention is to be on Christ. Right. It goes on and it says, There are other seed that's sown on the rocky ground, and the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they will receive it with joy. You will receive this word this morning. And you will, you will with excitement and joy, leave here excited about what God has said to you through his word this morning. And then it goes on and it says, And then they have, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulations and persecutions arise, on account of this word, immediately they fall away. You see what the attention is? They, 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 were, they were excited about this word. They were excited about receiving this word with joy. They get out in the world and tribulations and persecutions arise and they fall away. There's no root there. Finally, we see in the third type of soil, and there are others who are sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. And this is, I think, most pertinent for us this morning. In way of our attention, we're receiving this word this morning. We're receiving Christ being lifted up and exalted. We're receiving that word as seed being sown on the ground. And there are thorns among us. And it says this. It says, they are those who hear the word. Listen to these distractions, these other things that we so often pay attention to. But the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word out so that it proves itself unfruitful. See what's happening here? The attention is on so many other things. Friends, on our calendars, on our agendas, on our errands, on our to-do list, on all of these other things. Now, do we just supposed to, are we supposed to just stop those things and go to a corner bedroom and hum all day long and think on Christ? No, but we're to include Christ in all of those things. Lord, what are you to have me to do in the midst of all of these things? Allow me to make Christ central in my calendar, in my agenda, in my to-do list, in my interactions with others. You see, busy people can't pay much closer attention. Busy people can't pay much closer attention to Christ. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want to challenge you. I want to encourage us to be people who are paying much closer attention. 
that we're seeing that the busyness of our life so often is what's pushing us away from this very command. This isn't a suggestion. You know, we really think it would be best for you guys to, to pay closer attention to Christ. That's not what this says. Pay much closer attention. Why is it important that we are to pay so much closer attention? Why is it? Three reasons, and this is our three points this morning. Number one, because drifting is certain. Because drifting is certain. Number one reason. Number two, because retribution is sure. Because retribution is sure. That's number two. And number three, because salvation is great. Because salvation is great. That's number three. Because drifting is certain. Because retribution is sure. And because salvation is great. Let us consider why it is so important for us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Point number one, because drifting is certain. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Now, this is obviously a sailing metaphor. This is a sailing illustration. And the idea here is that there were many, many uh, different places where the snow, for example, would melt on the top of the mountains and they would run down the mountains into either the Sea of Galilee or into the Jordan River and then they would all end up where? Into the Dead Sea, in the, in the place of this, this region, this area, specifically in Jerusalem. What we find as well that this sailing imagery, many of you actually have grown up on the water. I didn't. You probably have a lot better understanding of this imagery, probably better even closer to what they had. These people understood sailing. They understood how things worked. I'm not as familiar with, with that. But I do know three things that I think are helpful here that are very basic that I think all of us understand about this idea of drifting and specifically drifting away. First thing I want us to notice about drifting is interesting as, we, as I studied the word is that drifting takes no effort. Drifting takes no effort. If you're in a boat... And you are drifting. You know where you are going? The same place that all the other trash in the stream is going. You're going in the direction of everything else that's what? Dead. Drifting takes no effort. And drifting is evidence of lifelessness. Of effortlessness. Drifting takes no effort. The second thing that I noticed about drifting is I thought about it, meditated on it is that one can drift without being aware. You know, you have probably sensed this. I've heard stories about people who um, thought they had their anchor down and somehow the tide changed and something happened and their, and their anchor came up and they ended up drifting and they were fishing or doing whatever they were doing. And before they knew it, they were way out of a place where they thought they were supposed to be. They had moved far, far away from where they thought they were. Because why? Because they were unaware. You know what they were not doing? They were not paying much close attention. They were not paying attention to where they were and what they were doing. And they began to drift. And they didn't even know it. Drifting can happen unaware. Drifting takes no effort. Drifting can happen unaware. And then finally and thirdly, I want to mention just this. And these are just things as I thought about and meditated on this idea of drifting. Thirdly is that the longer you drift, the further you are from where you're supposed to be. So, friends, this morning I want you to think about this. Are you one who has not been playing, paying much closer attention to, your, to, to, to Christ? Have you been 
kind of uh, Christ is an aside. It's kind of the, the, the other thing that's in my life with all the other things that are in my life. If that's the case, friends, you are drifting. The question isn't, well, maybe I'm drifting, maybe I'm not. No, you are drifting. And the longer you drift, the further you're going to be away from your destination. Drifting takes no effort. Drifting can happen as unaware. And the longer you drift, the further you are from your destination. Now, what does it it say in here? It says, lest you drift away from what? It says here, from it. It's the idea here. It's from what we've heard. From the gospel. Again, we'll mention the fact that the idea is that Christ and the gospel needs to be central. Needs to be paramount. Needs to be preeminent in our hearts and lives. Why? Because Christ is paramount. Preeminent, superior in all of creation. When we live our lives with Christ to the aside or Christ altogether gone from our lives, then we're living contrary to the way all things were created. And Christ promised us that, it, or God promised us that one day all things will come under subjection of Jesus Christ. And on that day, on that day, we need to consider. Now, let me give you an equation for those of you who like equations, and it is this attention. And I put in parentheses, on everything else, minus Christ equals drifting. Attention minus Christ equals drifting. And so all that we have to pay attention to needs to have Christ at the center of it. You know, this morning as I was reading over and looking at these prayer requests, it's amazing how busy we are, right? We have Nancy... Uh, beside her mom in a hospital bed. We have people at Episcopal trying to figure out what the classroom is going to look like. We have, we have um, the Frasers seeking to have a, a, a family to love across the street. We have uh, Dan, uh, Ben that's in an outpost in Afghanistan. We have Chris that's in a pulpit down at the beach. We have people all over the place doing all kinds of all kinds of things. And the question is, is Christ in the center of all of those things? Is Christ paramount in all of those things? Well, the answer from Scripture is yes. The question is, are we as God's people willing to live that way? You see, that's what ministry is called. That's what ministry is called. It's when we're loving these people that God's placed around us, when we're in the places God has called us to, and we're putting Christ in the middle of it. We're making him central. So attention minus Christ equals drifting. Point number two. Point number two. The reason we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, isn't just because drifting is certain, but because retribution is sure. Retribution is sure. Notice with me verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received just retribution, (coughs) how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Not only is drifting certain, but retribution is sure. The thought is here. The argument is going from lesser to greater. The logic is, if something of lesser degree is true, then indeed something of, of greater degree must be so much more true. So look at it, if you will, with me in verse 2. He's saying, we must pay much closer attention, verse 2, for since this message, this gospel that we've heard, was declared by angels, which we saw in, in chapter 1 happening, was declared by angels, proved to be reliable. 
or fixed or firm. And especially speaking of not just the, the Psalms, but it speaks of here specifically the law, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. It speaks specifically of that because in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, it says, You who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Now, we don't have that in the Old Testament. When Moses went up into the cloud on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, we don't see as we read those passages that there were angels there. But what we find in the New Testament is that the people of the New Testament, when they wrote about that event, they speak of the angels bringing down and actually giving to Moses the Ten Commandments and the law. So what we find is that these angels were delivering this message to Moses that became the message of God for all of his people. And since this message was declared by angels, proved to be reliable and fixed, in what way was it reliable and fixed? Because every time they disobeyed that law, every time they transgressed against that law, there was punishment. The entire Old Testament is test case after test case of every time God's people went against God's word, They were punished every time. God punished them. Now, what's amazing here is he says this. He says, for since this message was declared by angels, proved to be reliable and fixed, and notice the word here, and every, and that's the point there, every transgression and every disobedience received just retribution. And that's his point. Every time they disobeyed. Now, it's interesting, in the the original here, there's actually an interesting emphasis that's being made. Um, and, and, it's, and it's actually uh, uh, two of these words, this word for transgression and this word for disobedience, both start with the same letters. And it's actually a prefix. It's para. And um, para, um, in, even in our language today, is actually, in, in English, is, is used for uh, the understanding of from or away from or against. Right? For example, let me give you an example. And I looked up a few of these, so I'm not just smart. I actually had to find these. But like parachute is actually the word shoot is a French word for falling. And so if you're parachute, then you're against falling. That's why you have a parachute, right? Makes complete sense. You never knew that, did you? I didn't know that until I started looking it up. The idea of paranormal. Paranormal basically means it cannot be explained by scientific data. It's not normal. It's against what is normal, paranormal. Or the word paradox. The word paradox means it's against what is orthodox or moral. Paradox. And so we have this word para. And this para, this, this beginning, is on both of these words. And what's amazing here is this. The word for to do or to act is the first word. Para and then the word for to do. And then in the second word, it's para and the word to listen. And so what he's saying here is this. And he's trying to emphasize that every time... They did, some, they did something against the law, transgress, or refused to listen to the law, disobey, they received a just retribution. Do you get that? So what he's saying is that every time God's people did not do what they were asked to do or listen to the word that was preached, that was given, the law, what did God do? Every time, he says here, they received just retribution. That's amazing. Why? Because, and this is the point here, This is the point here, because if the angels delivered this message and it was so reliable and fixed and firm, according to verse two, that every time they transgressed, didn't do what they were told to do or disobeyed, that means didn't listen to when God said to do something, they received just retribution. 
Verse 3, how shall we escape this salvation that's been proclaimed through Christ, who is greater than the angels? Do you see the point there? Now get that. He's saying that if these angels delivered this message and there was, this, there was disobedience and there was transgression and they got punished every time they, that, that God's people went away from that, how much more do you think you will escape if you do not pay close attention to what Christ has said through his word? Now, what were God's people thinking here? These are Jewish people that are listening to this message here in the book of Hebrews. And they're thinking back to their law, their Old Testament. And they're thinking specifically, I believe, as we look at the rest of this passage, because we look in 3 and 4 and it talks about God's people entering into the rest. I believe these people were beginning to cue in, and this pastor was cueing them in to the Old Testament, of which many of us are not as familiar with. But what, what Mike read for us this morning in Numbers chapter 14, God's people had traveled from Egypt, crossed the wilderness, were getting ready to enter into the promised land. God had done amazing things for them, given them manna, Given, allowed them to break the Red Sea. They had done that. They had done all these wonderful things God had done for them and provided for them and cared for them. And they get to the, to, to right there at the edge of the promised land and two men go in, or actually 12 go in, and when they come back, only two say, yes, we can do it. All the others say, nope, they're too big. There's too, too many resources. There's too many things in there. We don't want to do that. And so they said, this is what's going to happen. This is what God's people were saying at the edge of the promised land. If we go in there, our children will be killed. What a plea. I mean, if we really want something to be done in America or in our home or anything else, what do we do? We point to the children. You know what? This is what? This is best for the children. We need to love the children. We need to care for them, right? You, you, you make the plea for the kids because they're, they're just so wonderful, right? And so that's what they did. They said, if we go into the promised land, our children will be killed. There's no way we should do this and kill our children. Numbers chapter 14, you don't have to turn there because you heard it already. It says, say to them as I live. This is God speaking to Moses, telling Moses to tell the people who refuse to go into the promised land. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, 20 years old and upward, everybody that left Egypt, what's going to happen to them? Who were grumbling against me, not listening to his word. They were disobedient, right? Anti, against hearing God's word. They were grumbling against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except for Caleb, the son of Jephna, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But... Listen to this, your little ones, those ones you're so concerned about, after you're dead and laying bodies in this, in this wilderness that you refuse to go into the promised land, your little ones whom you said would be prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. And so they're coming into the promised land as a testimony to their parents' faithful, faithlessness. It's amazing. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Parents, the most, the most, the greatest gift you can give to your children is to be faithful to God. And sometimes that means saying no to your children. 
Sometimes that means placing them in in situations where it's going to be tough and difficult and hard. And we don't like that, do we, parents? I don't like that. I want to provide everything for my child. But at the end of the day, what happens when I provide everything for them and I give them everything? What happens? God forbid they begin trusting in me and not in their God. You see, this is what's happened to God's people in in the book of Numbers. They were depending on their parents. Their parents were thinking, we're the ones that have to take care of our kids. And God says, wait a minute. Your kids were given to you by me. I take care of your kids. God takes care of your kids. Verse 34 of Numbers 14. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquities 40 years, and you shall know my displeasures. How careful is God at punishing these people? A year for every day that you were in, the, in, the, in there looking. I'm going to give you a year in the wilderness to be punished. How careful is God at punishing the sin of, as it speaks of here, transgression and disobedience. Not doing God's word. Not hearing God's word. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all the wicked congregation who has gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end and they shall die. Now, here's the point. Get this, because this is the point. If God was so insistent to make sure that that word given to God's people in the Old Testament was so reliable and fixed and sure that every transgression and disobedience received just retribution, meaning that every time, and we've got an entire Old Testament that proves that, don't we? The Old Testament convinces us that God does not take sin lightly, then how shall we escape? How shall we escape who neglect this salvation that wasn't given to us by angels, but was, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, but in these last days has been spoken to us by His Son? whom is appointed as the heir of all things, through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of the glory of God. How much more will we be receiving that just retribution? So, how shall we escape? How shall we escape? The idea is this. Is that if we begin drifting and we give it much time, it will shortly turn into neglect. You see what it's saying here? How shall we escape if we neglect? So we've moved now from drifting to neglect. We're neglecting a great salvation if we're not paying much closer attention. Why are we to pay much closer attention? First, because if we don't, we will surely begin drifting. And if we do not adhere to and if we do not pay attention to this drifting, it will become neglect. And if God was sure and steadfast in punishing those of the Old Testament with the message that was there, how much more can we be sure that God will punish those who are in the New Testament who received the word of Christ? How should we escape? So the the equation here is this. Attention minus Christ plus time equals neglect. Attention minus Christ plus time equals neglect. If we continue to, to drift and drift and drift over amount of time, we will begin to neglect the very salvation of God. Let me ask you this this morning, friends. Have you been neglecting Christ? Have you been somehow 
not paying much closer attention? Do you somehow think that God will understand or overlook your neglect? Because, I mean, God sees everything that we're doing. I mean, we're trying our best, right? I mean, we're giving it the best we can, and God will understand that I'm just, you know, I've got too many things on my plate. I'm doing too many things. There's, there's just not enough. He doesn't. Everything that God has given to you is for the purpose of encouraging us toward Christ and making us make much of Christ. Do you somehow think God will understand or overlook your neglect? If you have not been paying much closer attention to what you have heard, then you are drifting. And if you have been drifting for long, then you are in the category of neglect. And if you're neglecting this great salvation, do you think you will somehow escape from God's just retribution? Well, you won't. This is a hard message, isn't it? It's not one that I, as a pastor, like to give. But, friends, it's true. And it's true, as you notice here, notice verse 3. How shall, what's that pronoun? We. You and me. This preacher is saying, how are we, all of us, how are any of us thinking that we wouldn't escape if we neglect this great salvation? We will not. We will not. Because we're not paying much closer attention. Now, why is this salvation so great? Point number three. Point number three, because the reason we should pay much closer attention isn't just because uh, drifting is certain, but also because retribution is sure. Judgment is sure for those who do not pay attention to God's word. But thirdly, because salvation is great. Salvation is great. Look with me, if you will, at chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's so great about this salvation? Well, first, we see, first, it's great because it was declared at first by the Lord. You see that? See, this message, this gospel, was declared at first by the Lord. Now, that word declared, have you heard that before? Look at verse 2 at the beginning. For since this message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, you see what he's doing here? The author here is this, this pastor is saying, this message is great. The salvation is great because it wasn't declared by angels. It was instead declared first by our Lord, Jesus Christ, as he came and he communicated the message of the kingdom of God is at hand. This salvation is great because Jesus is the one who declared it at first, who is greater than the angels. So we see here that it is great because Christ declared it. Secondly, it is great because it, was, it has been attested to us by those who heard. You see that in verse 3? The second reason why it is so great is because it has been attested to us or confirmed to us or established in us as those who have heard. Now, what's amazing about this is, is this, is that it seems from this very passage here, this very phrase, and it was attested to us, the, the pastor and the preacher is actually speaking of himself in this, to us by those who heard, and the idea is this, those who heard from Jesus. And so these people did not hear the message from Jesus himself. They're second generation Christians. These are Christians who have heard the message through the apostles who heard it from Jesus. And these people who had heard it from Jesus attested or confirmed to them that this is in fact the message that is from God, from Jesus Christ his son. 
So it is demonstrated, tested, confirmed by those who heard it from Jesus and now has brought it to them. That's why it's so great. Because this is not just a one-generational message. It's a message to be passed on from one generation to the next. The gospel is only one generation from being extinct. If the entire generation chooses to not communicate the gospel or to taint or to pollute the gospel in such a way that it cannot be heard in the next generation, that's how God has ordained for the gospel to be propagated throughout the world. It's by the telling of the message, by people hearing and therefore having faith. Thirdly, third reason why this message is so great is in verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So not only is this message great because Jesus declared it, not only is it great because it was attested or confirmed by those who heard from Jesus and then told them, but thirdly, God himself bore witness. God himself, during the time of Jesus, caused signs and wonders and various miracles to take place to verify and to solidify, to confirm that this is in fact a message from God. People were saying of Jesus, he's doing these amazing things. He's working these amazing things. Is it because Jesus just had this real benevolent heart? Well, yes, he did, of course. But if you notice, he didn't just go and and completely eradicate all disease and all pain and all suffering from his world. There were times when he left the city when people were still sick and hurting. So what is Jesus doing? He's confirming his message. The signs and wonders and miracles were all secondary to the message of the gospel. We so often flip that around. We think that the, the, the meeting people's needs is of first order and that the gospel is really secondary. I'm going to be leaving on Friday to Ethiopia. And you'll hear more stories of Ethiopia, I'm sure, once I get back. But you go to Ethiopia and it is painful, the amazing physical need that's there. It is overwhelming. Everything in you wants to just put your hands to the task and help with... Um, th- there, are, there are still leper colonies in Ethiopia. We think those are... You know, we, that was Old Testament. There's, there's no way... Or New Testament. That's no way they're still around. There's still leper colonies in Ethiopia. Street children with incredible needs. And everything in us, everything when we're there, everything in us wants to say what we need to do is help their physical needs. And they have a lot of physical needs, and we shouldn't ignore those completely. But at the heart of what the issue is there is that there's no gospel. That the salvation of their hearts is what's most preeminent. Because we can fix their bodies, can't we? We can place them in wonderful homes. We can give them all the luxuries of life, and they'll be just as good as we are. And they'll still die and bust hell wide open, apart from the gospel. Do you see how we have to be very careful and fixed on our understanding of what these are? The miracles and the signs and the wonders were for the purpose of confirming the gospel. Now, um, I don't want to unpack all of this. This passage actually um, opens up a can of worms on whether signs and wonders and miracles should be done today. I don't think this passage here neither negates or fosters the idea that signs and wonders and miracles should happen today as they did in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't think this passage gives us that. Nor do I think this passage tells us that signs, wonders, and miracles are completely gone today. I think there's a good balance that can be had. And now that I've opened that can, I'm going to move on so that we can talk about that later. But the idea here is not only were these signs, wonders, and miracles testifying, bearing witness to the fact that God was the one who was displaying and giving the salvation, but also it says, and gifts of the Holy Spirit were being distributed. How? 
according to God's will. Not according to the televangelist and what he wants. Or to anybody else and what they want. Or what they feel or what they think. These gifts, these miracles, these signs were all distributed according to God's will. It says here, according to his will. And so, this great salvation. Why should we, this morning, pay much closer attention? We should pay much closer attention this morning because drifting is certain. Because retribution is sure. And because salvation is indeed great. Now, as we look at this, this salvation isn't great because of you. The cross isn't a declaration of our worth. The cross is a declaration of God's love to the unworthy. You see here in this passage, it doesn't say salvation is great because my life has been cleaned up and everything has been good and things have worked out better and all these things are wonderful. That's not what this passage says, that salvation is great. That's not why salvation is great. Salvation is great because Christ declared it, because the disciples testified to it, and because God bore witness to it. All of that is outside of us, irregardless of how we feel about it. And so today, if you are not willing to pay much closer attention to God's word, you're not hindering God's authority. You're not bucking the system and so everything's not under authority of God. Everything is under the authority of God and what he is doing. And this morning, we come as God's people. And I want to encourage you as your pastor, those of you who are here, we must pay much closer attention, friends. We must pay much closer heed. We must devote our life to Christ. So that when we are in the classroom, or when we're in the pulpit, or when we're in the outpost, or in the workplace, or in the home, or in the kitchen, or changing our child, or loving our wife, we're to make Christ central in all of those things. We're to ask ourselves the question, how can Christ be preeminent and predominant in this situation, in this role, in this calling? And not use those things as as, as opportunity to set Christ aside, but instead to make Christ central.